Hello, and welcome to episode 122 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week, we're happy to welcome Karen Meyer back as host. Karen will be talking to Mark and Alex Engelberg. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. First, we have a couple of important dates related to Euroclosure 2017. The deadline to submit a talk is April 21st, 2017. So if you have a talk you want to give at Euroclosure, you only have a couple of weeks, as I record this, to get your submission in. The Euroclosure Opportunity Grant applications also need to be in by April 21st. For more information about Euroclosure, go to 2017, that's the digits, 2017.euroclosure.org. Second, the Closure Bridge folks have been really, really busy lately. So there'll be a Closure Bridge event on April 28th and 29th in Northampton, Massachusetts, that's in the USA. There'll also be a Closure Bridge event in Stockholm, Sweden on May 5th and 6th. Not to be outdone, there'll be a Closure Bridge in Tampere, I'm sure I am butchering that name, Finland, that's T-A-M-P-E-R-E, Finland, on May 6th, and they note that that event will be held in Finnish. There's also going to be a Closure Bridge event in New York City on May 26th to 28th, 2017, and another one in London on June 2nd and 3rd. In case you don't know, Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free, beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. And I can tell you from personal experience, Closure Bridge workshops are a lot of fun. For more information on any of these Closure Bridge events, go on over to www.closurebridge.org/events. And if you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast.cognitech.com. So that's about it. So on to Karen and Mark and Alex in episode 122 of the Cognicast. that I am indeed recording. So, um, we'll get started. Welcome everyone. Today is March 17th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Karen Meyer, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome the team of Mark and Alex and Engelberg. Hi, Karen. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, it's, it's great. So where are you physically located um, where you're talking to us? We're looking at each other, deciding who, how, who answers what question here. Um, we're located in the Seattle area. We're actually located in Everett, Washington, which is a little bit north of Seattle. Everett is where uh, the biggest building in the world is, which is the Boeing plant, where they actually build the airplanes. Oh, wow. And we're just a few minutes away from that. Yep. It's our local claim to fame, and I've only been there like once. <laughs> Very cool. The weather out there right now, is it like spring? Is it kind of warm or kind of cold? Yesterday was the first beautiful day of the year. Nice. <laughs> and today it's gone. Yeah. Well, <laughs> looks like it, but we'll see. Well, hopefully it get warmer. Um, 
So um, we're, we start off the show um, generally with a question about art. Uh, so this is art and it can just be anything how it relates to you. Um, so Alex, I think you had a, something that you wanted to share about that? Yeah, so um, I think that the, the main sort of artsy thing that's been on my mind lately because uh, I've been a part of it for the last few weeks is uh, it's a show that's going on um, that I'm in called uh, Build Your Own Musical. It's, uh, it's really exciting. Uh, it's, some, it's like an uh, improv musical show uh, in an in a, uh, in improv theater in Seattle. And um, that's sort of what I've been doing lately, and it's super exciting to be a part of it. So that's sort of my art thing. Wow. Yeah, the, the theater is Unexpected Productions. They're actually located in Pike's Place Market, which is the big tourist attraction in Seattle. So... Uh, they get a lot of tourists. It's, it's a kind of a hot spot when they come to Seattle. So it's a professional improv group uh, that plays out of there. And Alex has been their musician for uh, several months now. He invents musical scores while they're inventing scenes on stage. And, and this latest one he's doing, I, I've had a chance to see it a few times. It's really a wonderful show. Wow. What, what instrument do you play? Uh, in, th in this show, I generally play the keyboard. Ah, okay. So how do you, uh, I, I, I've really never been to an improv musical, so I'm trying to imagine in my mind what, what that would be like. Like, how, yeah. how, do you do, how do you decide, like, what music to play? Mm, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting thing. And it, it's, it, it's probably, um, it, it's very hard to do, and it's probably even harder to explain, but... Uh, basically, I mean, it's mostly, uh, kind of, I, the, the less I think about it, the more, uh, the more it makes sense when I do it. Um, because if you overthink it, it's, it's already too much. <laughs> so you have to sort of absorb a lot of different music. So expose yourself to different music. And then, um, it helps that I know a bit of music theory to kind of weave chord structures together and stuff like that. And then everything else is just sort of playing what comes to mind. It, it really is totally improvised. I, it, it's hard when you're watching it to imagine that they're really just making it up on the fly. But that's exactly what's happening. Alex is sometimes just playing whatever mood seems to fit. And they, in this particular show, they build the musical around the lives of two people in the audience. So they, at the beginning of the show, they pick two people out at random and ask them questions about their their lives and their past and what they do for their job and things like that. And then they improvise a, a musical story about that. And I, I, sometimes Alex will just play whatever comes to mind, some some mood, and the, the singers will, will run with that and start making up lyrics and singing along to it. Sometimes they'll initiate something and Alex kind of picks up on what they're doing and he'll jump in with the appropriate accompaniment and it's just a back and forth it's it's really it, to me like I'm a musician and I compose music and do a lot of that for fun but I can't do it in real time like Alex can so I, I'm always just amazed when I go and watch it's it's pretty cool <laughs> that sounds fascinating <laughs> so uh, Mark what 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 do you play then uh, piano, and mm -hmm. my other big focus is I do a lot of acapella singing. So I'm in like 
three different acapella groups. Wow. So it's an artistic family. And, and I, I didn't mention at the, at the beginning of the show, because I kind of know you both, but I guess I should say to the audience that you are related. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. So um, do you want to just introduce yourselves and like your, uh, how old are you now, uh, Alex? So uh, I am 18. Okay. Um, and this, um, this is my dad, Mark. And um, I think sort of the reason we're on here uh, is I, I think a lot of people know us as being sort of the, the main sort of like father son duo of closure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll probably go into more depth about the stuff we've done in a bit, but yeah, it's super exciting to be here. Yeah. yeah I remember several years ago, uh, I gave a talk about Instaparse, which I'm sure we'll be going into a little more later, but I gave a talk about Instaparse at Closure West. And as part of that talk, I mentioned that the origin story of Instaparse was that it was kind of a homeschooling project I gave Alex. And then I just kind of took it and ran with it from there. Um, and I mentioned that as part of my talk, just a little aside in the middle of kind of talking about some of the algorithms and the ideas behind Instaparse. And afterwards at the conference, I think more people came up to me and asked me about that. Like, really? You homeschool your kid? And, <laughs> oh, really? You taught him programming and he's doing something like this? Wow. You know, people had all kinds of questions for me about that. I don't think anyone actually asked me about any other facet of the talk about Instaparse. <laughs> you know, that was the piece. And I guess it just kind of resonated for a lot of people because I guess there's a lot of programmers out there who are at the stage of their life where they have young kids. And I think most programmers want to share that love of programming with their kids. And the reality of it is that there's not much opportunity in schools to do that these days, it, although that's gradually beginning to change. And so I, I think people just got really excited about that. And uh, so like Alex said, I think now we're sort of known as this fa the father-son duo of closure. And maybe that's what people think of when they think of us more than anything else right now. Well, I, I think that's awesome. Um, so I, I guess while we're, we're talking about it, how, how, did, how did that start? Uh, the homeschooling the, yeah, or the closure the, specifically? The, or? Were you always homeschooled or was there, was there a, you know, a, a time that you said, okay, we're going to homeschool now later in the school process or how, how did that all happen? Uh, yeah, I've, I've basically been homeschooled ever since I think kindergarten or something. Uh, and um, uh, it's been interesting. A lot of people ask me like, you know, how, how's homeschooling? Would you recommend it or anything like that? And I mean, honestly, I can't really compare it with anything because I've never really been to a public school. Um, but uh, it's I, I think homeschooling is sort of the only way I'm sort of at where I am today in terms of like programming skill, because I was able to focus on what I was passionate about very early on when I discovered that I liked it. Um, and also, luckily, my primary teacher, a.k.a. my dad, uh, was already fairly skilled in functional programming uh, from college. So he uh, he had a bunch of tools to teach me that early on. And I guess you, if, if you want, you can go into what kind of stuff you were teaching me. Yeah. So I'll also add to that um, that I was actually the stay-at-home dad in the family. Um, when Alex, Alex is my first child, and when Alex was born, 
I think, well, so my wife and I, my wife's name is Mindy, and she's also a programmer. And she had very generous, uh, her company gave a generous three-month maternity leave. So she was home with Alex initially. And we hadn't really talked about who was going to stay home with the kids. I think we just had this unspoken assumption that it was probably going to be her. But it's like we never really sat down and had a conversation about it. And then towards the end of those three months, she was home with Alex as an infant. And I, I came home one day and she was just in tears. And I was like, what's wrong? And she's like, I hate this. I got to go back to work. <laughs> and I said, uh, I'll, I'll stay home. And she just looked at me like, really? You would do that? I said, sure. <laughs> yeah, I'd actually kind of like to do that. So that was how we made the swap. And so when her maternity leave was done, she went back to work and I called in and resigned from work and decided to stay home. And so I became the stay at home dad. And what I found was that when Alex and then my daughter later, Molly, uh, when they were really young, just to stay sane, I was teaching them stuff just like, you know, they'd be little toddlers and I'd be showing them magnet letters and reading things to them and, you know, doing some math games with them just because that was the only way I personally could stay interested in what mm -hmm. I was doing. Um, but then when Alex hit kindergarten age, I went to the kindergarten orientation and sat in the audience as the teacher kind of explained what they were going to be doing for the next year. And it kind of occurred to me that Alex had already done all of that. And I was thinking, okay, now what? And I, and I actually went up and asked the teacher afterwards. I said, well, what do you do with kids who kind of already know this stuff? And she had two responses, which I have found, unfortunately, to be typical of the public school system, at least around here. Uh, the first thing she said was, well, it doesn't really matter because, to be honest, all they're really learning in kindergarten is how to stand in line. And I thought, okay, you're not making a good case for yourself right now. But, okay, what's your other answer? And that second answer she gave was, um, well, it also doesn't really matter because the kids all even out soon after anyway. Hmm. And, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, they even out because you don't do anything different for the kids who already know this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just did kind of racked my brain trying to figure out what I was going to do about this and realized, you know, maybe what I had been doing was working. So maybe I should just keep doing it. Like I, I effectively, I'd been homeschooling already. I just hadn't thought of it as homeschooling. So I thought, well, it's working. I guess I'll keep going as long as it's working. And that ended up being all the way uh, for us. Um, so that's, that's kind of the story of how I got into that. I also, it probably helped. Uh, another thing that kind of tied into that was around when Alex was born, I decided I wanted to volunteer to teach in the local schools. And I went around to a bunch of different schools and offered my services. as like, I'm willing to teach, you know, programming or mathematical logic. Like there's a bunch of stuff I'm, I have expertise in that you probably don't have teachers on staff who can do these things. I would be really interested in volunteering to teach a class. And most of the schools, they said, well, 
you know, the first question was, are you a certified teacher? And I said, well, no. <laughs> and they said, so then you can't do this. But the one exception was there was a homeschool center in the area. It was a public school, but specifically for homeschool kids who wanted to come in and take classes. And they were really excited about it. I mean, they don't care if a person's certified or not. They're just like, yeah, if you're going to teach interesting classes to our kids, that would be fantastic. So I ended up teaching uh, a whole classroom of homeschool kids. And for me, that shattered a lot of the stereotypes I had of homeschool kids. And I got to see what interesting lives these kids led. So I think that made me also more open-minded about homeschooling so that when I had that experience of taking, of going to that kindergarten orientation, realizing it might not be a good fit, I was very open to the possibility of homeschooling because I had already been around homeschool kids for so many years. So uh, what age um, did you start introducing um, your children to programming? Well, really from a very early age, like four or five, we did a lot of playful things with programming. The kind of things like nowadays Scratch is probably one of the most popular ways to introduce kids. And, and we were actually involved in one of the pilot tests of Scratch, but there were a few different things like Scratch that came before Scratch. Uh, so we did a lot of those sorts of things. Like uh, there's something that probably a lot of people haven't heard of, something called Squeak. Uh, mm. Squeak is a version of Small Talk, uh, written by Alan Kay, who uh, included in it a sort of subsystem specifically for kids called eToys, and it was built right into the language. And Scratch was actually directly inspired from this Squeak eToys product. There was a commercial product around the same time called StageCast, which I don't think is still around, but uh, that was another example of stuff that I would do with my kids for programming. So because that was all going so smoothly, by the time Alex was around eight, I decided it was time to, you know, dig out my college textbooks and start up with an actual, like, freshman course from, of computer science from college. As one does. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> so w which uh, language was it then, the first one? The first one was uh, Racket which okay. is a di another dialect of scheme, just like closure. It used to be called like PLT scheme, right? Yeah, at the time it was called PLT scheme. The dialect was, or the, the IDE, the educational IDE was called doctor scheme, and it's been changed to racket. Uh, I think a lot of people assume it's considerably different from scheme because it's got a different name, but the reality is it's really more like scheme with a bunch of, extra libraries that aren't standard in the core um, for of scheme. You know, scheme is intentionally a very minimalist uh, language, the way it's defined, the way it's specced out. And so the people who developed Racket had developed these additional module systems, these additional libraries that they thought should be part of the language. And they, I think they lobbied for it to be part of the actual scheme language, but the people in charge of the spec said, no, we really want to keep this minimalist. So they're like, okay, well, I guess we'll just call it something different. They call it racket. So, so you, that yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, so it was, it was like parens from the very beginning then, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. 
He thinks natively in Lisp, yes. I feel like there's an XKCD comic about that. Yeah. You've been trained correctly. Yeah. And, and I, it wasn't a given necessarily that I was going to teach him that up front. I mean, I, I really researched a bunch of possibilities. I got my hands on just about every freshman textbook I could and read through them to make a decision. Actually, my wife is not, she's, she's very much not a functional programmer. I mean, she's, you know, straightforward C++ Java programmer all her life. And she is kind of, I mean, she was very skeptical actually of my choosing to teach that way. I, I remember describing to a friend some of the really almost, almost religious-like arguments we had over what language to teach Alex. <laughs> and he joked that it's, you know, my story sounded like a, you know, a Buddhist and a Christian fighting for the soul of their son. <laughs> uh, but in this case, because I was the one who was actually staying home and doing the teaching, like I don't think we ever actually came to an agreement on how to teach. It was just that I was the one staying home and one by default, I think. <laughs> Um, and I think years later, she's said to me maybe once or twice, yeah, it worked out well. <laughs> well, I think there was one time uh, she went on like a business trip to a Java conference. And then she, she came back from the conference saying like, holy crap, you're right. Because like everybody at the conference was talking about all these cool new things like Groovy and Clojure and Scala. Yeah, she said there were actually more talks at that conference about Clojure and Scala than there were about Java. And that was an eye-opening moment for her because she had, it was a Java conference. Right. <laughs> and she said, yeah, okay, you're right. This is the up-and-coming thing. So can't escape the friends at home and can't escape at, at other conferences, huh? <laughs> yeah. It's taken over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, the, when did you move to Clojure then? Did you just go straight from that to Clojure or were there any other languages in between? Um. So I was using, uh, I was happily using Racket for a while, um, and uh, I, I recall that my dad was using Clojure from the very beginning because he's he is a, an independent freelance contractor on a team of one, so he can use whatever language he wants. <laughs> uh, and so he was using Clojure, and um, I was sort of like watching over his shoulder, seeing like, oh, this this looks scheme-ish. It looks kind of cool. If if you really like it so much, then it would be cool if you could teach it to me. And he uh, he waited until there was a non Emacs editor available uh, for Closure, because learning Closure and Emacs would just be cruel and unusual punishment. I agree. So yeah. <laughs> so I, I I think the 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 first sort of mature editor to come out um, maybe about a few years into Clojure's existence was uh, the counterclockwise plugin for Eclipse. So he taught me that and and that worked out for a while. Um, and then it, ironically enough, eventually I just ended up switching back to Emacs uh, <laughs> just because I could, I, I, I could handle the learning curve at that point. So, um, but I'm still glad that I did not learn Emacs initially. Uh, and um, so, Probably the main uh, sort of use case that I benefited from early on from Clojure that kind of got me hooked into it 
was interestingly uh, programming contests and uh, sort of backing up a little bit. Um, after I learned Racket, I was I joined uh, a a programming contest. Uh, I believe it was at UW, f- uh, run by the. So UW, not everyone's yeah. going to know what that is because oh yeah, use yeah. that acronym locally. <laughs> it's University of Washington. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, at the University of Washington, they uh, ran a high school. Uh, programming contest and uh, sort of um, various high schools around Seattle sort of sent their kids as teams to this thing. And I think, but at the time I was like 12 or something. Yeah. Somewhere in around there, 11, 12. (laughs) I don't remember exactly. And um, so it was a contest for teams of three and I joined as a team of one. And it was mostly for kids the the contest problems were mostly oriented around Java because the assumption was that these were going to be teams of three kids, most of whom were taking AP computer science. So a lot of the problems, like they, they did not restrict entrance to using Java, but a lot of the problems were calibrated, the difficulty on it with this assumption of kind of how easy or hard is this to implement in Java, what classes are available to you in Java mm-hmm. to write this easily. Uh, so, yeah, I, when I, I found out about this contest and asked Alex if he wanted to go and he was interested, so I, I made it happen. But I really didn't know what to expect the first time because, you know, these were, team, like you said, teams of three mostly doing Java. And here Alex comes in as an 11 or 12-year-old. I don't remember exactly, but he comes in as a team of one. Using racket. Using racket, <laughs> competing in this contest. And it turned out he... He won. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and yeah, they the the way they had it logistically at the time was they separated into two categories. The the first time contestants were called the novice category, and then there was the advanced category, which was everyone who had competed before. But in this particular iteration of the contest, they had given the same uh, the same contest to both categories on uh, some. Some iterations of the event, they actually had different contest packets for the different leagues. But here they gave the same contest packet to everyone. So even though, like, he won in the novice league, but he also, it turned out, his score was higher than everyone in the advanced league as well. <laughs> uh, that was the that was the second contest I did, not the first. Oh, was it the second? Yeah. Okay. But the, <laughs> and yeah, everybody, I, I wasn't sure. I was backstage, not well, back, not stage, but, like, in a separate room away from the contest with all the teachers kind of watching the scores come in as they were competing live. And, you know, there was this point in the room where people are like, wait, who is that whose score is going up? And they're, they're looking around like, whose student is that? And I kind of (laughs) raised my hand and they're like, what? That's, that's your student. I'm like, yeah, that's my son. He's just competing by himself. And, And they all just kind of turned to me and they, they, I wasn't sure how they would react, but they were actually incredibly nice and friendly about it. They were they were supportive. When everybody came out later, they were rooting for Alex and cheering him on. Um, a lot of the teachers came up to me asking me more details about what curriculum I used with him. And they encouraged me to come to future meetings of the Computer Science Teacher Association here in the area so I could talk about the techniques I used a bit. Great. And they were all just really supportive of the whole thing. And I, and a lot of the other kids, I think, 
were really inspired also, and it kind of elevated their game in future contests. And it, it did exactly what competition is supposed to do, like people being really friendly towards each other, but using ad, it as an impetus to get better themselves. Uh, but Alex, you were going to explain how that transitioned you to closure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I was doing that for a while in Racket. And then once I started using Clojure, um, it had a couple of benefits which directly imp- uh, affected me in w- when I went to do these contests. Um, one, I mean, Clojure is just sort of more specifically designed to uh, have m- uh, shorter syntax to get things done quicker. Um, like, for example, um, those those benefits include like immutable data structures to or like sort of very compact literals for data structures. Um, and so it's very easy to sort of get up and running uh, to write a function that, you know, accumulates everything in a list or a set or something like that. Um, and it just has more different types of data structures built into the language. Uh, and it just has more of a uh, standard library of uh, sequence operations, data structure operations, um, where, you know, I mean, it's great to use Racket, but it it honestly felt like closure was almost like just specifically designed to just get things done mm-hmm. quicker, um, which is one of the things I still like about it to this day. Uh, and you know the the other benefit was which was sort of specific to this contest, but uh, you know it, it, it's a hosted language on top of Java, so I actually felt more at home trying to compete with all these Java people because uh, with that in mind that um, the the the, the contest was designed with that in mind, so certain problems had to deal with things like date math or something like that. And um, and in Racket standard libraries, there weren't necessarily uh, as, as many libraries to, to compete with the Java standard library. Um, and like there was some date stuff, but it wasn't obvious how to how to use that in the same way that Java people were going to. Um, and uh, I, I think that. Um, Honestly, one of the things I probably got a, a leg up on other people by using a, a racket enclosure, like the, there's there's functional programming and that's great and everything. And uh, but I I remember that um, all the other uh, all the other contestants using Java had a headache getting I/O to work, mm. and uh, everybody had these like sort of cheat sheets filled with. Uh, I/O commands like reading from scanners and stuff like that, and like just trying to read a matrix of tables. Mm-hmm. And enclosure, I just slurp, <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> Hashtag good times. Yeah, the strategy turned out to be uh, when you're in a closure or scheme is basically to read in the whole file, parse it up into some kind of S expression as quickly as you can using split or something like that to just chop it up into a bunch of individual data sets in a list. And then you have everything at your disposal to is all built around, you know, how to manipulate Mm -hmm. these, this data, these collections. And once you have it in that form, it's wow, that almost sounds like the motivation of a library that we wrote. <laughs> I know. I was like, this sounds very familiar, maybe to something called Instaparse. Is that? <laughs> That's right. Segway. <laughs> although we weren't, we, uh, he, even if Instaparse had been written at the time, he actually wouldn't have been allowed to use that in the contest because to keep things on a level playing field, they had these very strict rules 
about how you could only use libraries that were that really came with the language. Okay. And I, I, I lobbied for, I made the case successfully that things in the contrib should potentially be included in that. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but things outside of that were uh, not allowed. And yeah, I, yeah um, and, and it sort of goes back to what I was saying about how uh, having having access to Java because I was on Clojure was helpful because like all these Java people, I mean, they weren't pulling in any standard libraries, but the JDK has so much stuff. Uh, so have uh, in in Racket, I I was sort of limited a little bit by the actual built-in stuff. Yeah. Um, before we move on from the topic of uh, programming education, I did want to call out a couple resources for your listeners because oh, some yeah. people will probably be curious what I actually ended up using. So. For the initial textbook, I highly recommend this textbook called How to Design Programs. It's written by uh, Matthias Felizen and some other authors. He's the guy behind the little schemer that a lot of people in the closure community may be familiar with. And when I first encountered the textbook, I think people had described it to me as being, you know, maybe like SICP light, SICP meaning uh, being the structure and interpretation of computer programs, which is kind of a famous scheme book. Uh, but I actually don't agree with that description of it as being a light version of the other thing. It's actually got its own, uh, it's, its own teaching approach that I think is really compelling. It's the, the best way to describe it is that uh, as programmers, every day we're, we face this situation of we're looking at a blank page, just trying to figure out how to get started on a problem. And uh, this is something that I, some of us may do instinctively, but a lot of people it's really struggle with that. You know, how do I, how do I break this problem down? How do I design my functions appropriately? And it really walks you through what, what the book calls a design recipe, hmm. a series of steps where you really articulate the problem statement, you come up with representative examples and tests. And, and then when you have, from that, you can sketch out a template of how this function could look because one of the big ideas of the curriculum is that for the vast majority of our of programs we write, the shape of the function reflects the shape of the data that it's processing. So often if you know what the data is that's going to be the input, you can extrapolate out from that this kind of straightforward template because all functions that process that, that particular kind of data are going to have a similar, similar structure to them. Hmm. And that's why when you process lists, lists are essentially a recursive data structure, you end up typically with a recursive function that follows a certain pattern. So a lot of students studying many different kinds of, uh, in other programming curricula, they really struggle with recursion, but the way it's presented in this book is so clear because recursion is just presented as, this is the most natural way to process recursive data. And it's, it's, it's really nicely structured like that. It gives you uh, just a really solid foundation on how to think about these different kinds of data and how to process them. So I strongly recommend that book. The, the other 
recommendation that I have is that uh, choosing a math curriculum, I, I had the luxury of doing that because I was homeschooling, but if you have the freedom to choose your own math curriculum, that can make a big difference as well because programming and math can be so tightly intertwined. And, and if you teach them together, you can get this really wonderful synergistic benefit. So there's this wonderful math curriculum from a couple decades ago that was archived online for free when it no longer became profitable for the publisher to keep it around. And it's called the Comprehensive School Mathematics Program. Uh, and that's the acronym is CSMP. And it's archived by uh, a professor from, I think, SUNY Buffalo or something like that. Some, some professor out of New York who used to be involved with writing this curriculum. And so it's archived on their website. And you can find it. It's a detailed K through six curriculum that is just a wonderfully rich mathematics education that covers a wide range of topics related to programming as well. Like I, I remember somewhere in the fourth or fifth grade curriculum I'm flipping through and I almost fell out of my chair when I saw there was a whole lesson on Huffman coding. <laughs> like, wow, they're doing Huffman codes in like fourth grade in this math curriculum. I mean, this is phenomenal. There was one day where my wife came home and said, uh, yeah, we were passing around this interview problem at work to decide if it was a fair interview problem. Uh, and she shared it to me and said, you know, hey, I, can, can you solve this interview problem? And I asked her, she described it to me. I said, huh, what a coincidence. That was actually the math lesson out of the CSMP curriculum that I did with Alex just this morning. <laughs> oh, that's great. So you, you, we'll get both of those links um, and put them in yeah. the show notes too. So we'll, we'll uh, make them available. But yeah, thank you so much for sharing those. That's, those are great resources. I guess Instaparse, uh, then going back to Instaparse, because I, I really want to hit it because I, I, I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how do Alex and I refer to you as the first Instaparse fan. <laughs> I'll just just uh, tell everybody uh, my personal story with Instaparse. Um, I wasn't formally trained in computer science. It was kind of something I kind of picked up, um, you know, and, and made a career of. And as a result, I, I never had the experience of making my own language. So with the help of Instaparse, I was able to make my own language in that magic moment when I had a REPL up to my own, you know, little language was just, it, it was great. And I thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so Alex, do you want to describe that or do you want me to uh, Yeah, I can tell the story as I, I as I still remember it. Um, uh, I believe that the, uh, the first version of Instaparse was a homeschooling assignment to me. <laughs> and, uh, I do not. Rec um, you, you can elaborate a little bit later, like what the actual like lesson slash well, algorithm was. I, I'll, I I'll start off with that. Actually, okay, and sure. You can take it from there. Sure. Um, it started when I decided it was time to teach Alex about monads. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> as one does. <laughs> so, yeah, as one does. So I was looking for some compelling examples of monads to, to motivate the teaching of that and. One that we spent some time on was the probability monad. And so 
uh, Alex did some interesting things with that that he can tell you about at some point. And then uh, the next sort of most common interesting monad to discuss is the parsing monad. So we were we were talking about parsing combinators and doing those things. And as he was working on that, I thought to myself, you know, it's been a long time that this stuff has been around parsing. Surely somebody's come up with a better way by now. There's got to be, because because parsing combinators are restricted to certain types of grammars that don't have recursion usually in the leftmost mm -hmm. part of the grammar, the leftmost symbol. So I was like, you know, there's got to be, I bet there's some better ways to do this now. So I, I started reading through some papers and looking online and searching for what is, you know, what, like, what's the state of the art in parsing? And I was actually inspired, Racket, someone, I think it was a, a grad student named Danny Yu, uh, I, I believe he was a grad student at the time, who had written a parser, a parsing engine for Racket, because one of the claims to fame of Racket, aside from being a, a teaching tool, is they pride themselves on the fact that Racket is a great language for creating other languages. Mm. So they wanted to make a convenient to use parser for that. And there was also somebody in the community uh, called Matt Might who gave a talk about uh, a technique that he had recently uncovered for finding, uh, for, for handling any possible grammar. And that's actually, I believe, Matt Might's talk and his technique uh, called parsing with derivatives is the approach that Closure Specs library uses. And I actually tried Matt Might's technique first, but um, I had trouble getting it to run in a performant way. So I talked with Danny Yu, who had written this parser for Racket called RAG, and asked him what techniques he used. And I also wrote to a bunch of uh, the authors of closure parsing libraries at the time and asked them for more information about what they used. But Danny Yu pretty much said that even though it wasn't what he had used, he pointed me at this paper that he, he sort of said, if I were to do it again from scratch, I would try this paper first because this looks really interesting. And so I went to that paper and uh, what was, I'm trying to remember what the name of the paper is. I'm blanking on. GLL. Yeah, G, that's right. Generalized, GLL standing for generalized LL parsing. And I <laughs> found the paper. And so the homeschooling project was basically, I handed it to Alex and I said, read this paper. How old um, were you, Alex? I just, I just want to know. <laughs> uh, I want to say like 14. Oh, wow. 14. Okay. <laughs> and I said, go figure out how to implement this. Yeah. And I think I also pointed him, I think there was, someone had written a implementation in Scheme that wasn't designed to be particularly performant, but sort of ex it, it illustrated some of the techniques. So that was another resource that I pointed him at. And now you can take over if you remember more from there. Well, uh, yeah, I just remember uh, the, the last I remember was that I was porting over basically the scheme paper into closure, I think. And, uh, and I got that to work and, um, and then dad just sort of like kind of took over that and then made it like went all the way to make it like kind of an official library. And, and he, he also, um, sort of, thought of the idea of like, what if 
the user actually just gave you a, like gave Instaparse a string ebnf spec, and then Instaparse like parses that and then turns that into a parser. Yeah, that's true. I guess that was something that I thought yeah. of. And um, and he was also I I I'll expound on all the effort that he put into this. Uh, <laughs> he I I recall that he would be stay up late at night, like trying to perfect the performance of it. And like every morning he would like tell me, I, I got another like few milliseconds of performance <laughs> out of this. And, uh, um, uh, he, I was sort of the, the full-time consultant about public API usability, uh, just sort of like how the API was going to work, um, and whether that's going to work. And then I, what I personally, uh, what 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 I contributed uh, early on was the sort of ABNF alternative parser because that seemed to be a use case for people. So, so I'm going to ask you to explain what ABNF is because I I didn't yeah, know at, at at the time. I, I looked it up and I probably misremember it now. So if you want to, <laughs> I think you should explain the ABNF notation or how you got the amalgam of formats. Uh, sure. So, and and I'll just add that. What Alex was saying, I mean, he had written the the first implementation that port that, and when I started playing around with it, I thought this is actually really fun and potentially useful. So I decided to make it a library. Almost, it was my way of role modeling for Alex what's involved with getting a library into uh, into a form that's usable by the community. Mm -hmm. Like this was just I, I don't really use parsers in my work, I, Alex. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't. I, I think we were both joking the other day that I think still to this day, neither of us have had a reason to use Instaparse for anything serious and professional. Uh, but I just thought this was a great opportunity. I saw that this could be potentially useful, this, this implementation that he had written. And I wanted to demonstrate what was involved with going that extra mile to, to make it useful to the community. And I didn't want to force him to do that just because I know also what can go into maintaining an open source project. And I didn't want to saddle yeah. him at that point, with this responsibility of always having to necessarily maintain it. Although I think these days, actually, he does do more of the maintenance than I do. Um, but at that time, I did not want to impose that upon him. So yeah, you were asking specifically so about is, BNF grammars. Yeah, is it, is it stand for extended Bacchus? Now. Yeah, Bacchus Nauer form. <laughs> okay. Bacchus Nauer form is the notation that a lot of grammars are written in. And, you know, it's like regular expressions have a certain uh, set of symbols that we understand what they are. You know, star means zero or more, plus means one or more, question mark means zero or one. Like, there's certain symbols that we know what that means with regular expressions. So Bacchus Nauer form is a way of specifying a context-free grammar. And it's a series of rules where you're saying this left side, you know, I, I'm calling this the rule for uh, number. So a number is one or more digits. And a digit is either zero or one or two up to nine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of, that's the series of rules and you can usually use a lot of regular expression notation kind of mixed in there uh, is 
the, the, the use of plus and star and you know those are kind of incorporated into it as well. But there have been a lot of different standards over the years uh, in terms of like there's more. So, so I think I'm trying to remember, I think it's EBNF that, that extended Bacchus Nower form that brings those standard regular expression operators into the grammar. I think the regular original Bacchus Nower form used its own notation for zero or more and one or more. Oh yeah, like the square like brackets. They put, put curly braces around it to yeah. mean one thing and brass square brackets around it to mean yeah. another thing. So that was kind of like the early BNF form it had its own notations and then EBNF brought in some of the notations that people were used to from regular expressions into this grammar notation. Um, but even when you talk about EBNF, there's still a bunch of variations out there. So I just had to kind of make some choices when doing Instaparse of what I thought was a reasonable notation. Um, but shortly after the release, or I think it was after the release, people pointed at how a lot of uh, a lot of official standards are written use, using something called ABNF, hmm. which is a very specific variation that has a clear spec associated with it. And so, as a consequence, the you know some of these official specs like the official spec for what does a url have to look like um those tend to be written in abnf hmm. so alex wrote the subsystem to handle the abnf grammars after the initial release of instaparse and the other I, I guess major piece that he's been doing for the last year or two was working on the closure script. Oh, nice. Yes. Or yes. So, uh, uh, I, I have to give some credit to sort of who initially started this, uh, which I believe, uh, the, it, it was majorly maintained, uh, by Lucas Bradstreet. He, um, uh, he, sort of maintained a, like a separate fork of Instaparse for like two or more years, just called Instaparse CLJS, whose only purpose was for people who want to use Instaparse on ClojureScript. And um, uh, we we didn't necessarily want to uh, pull that into the original Instaparse until uh, we could figure out a way of expressing the ClojureScript version of Instaparse in a way that's easy to further develop and iterate on mm -hmm. uh, because um, at the time that Instaparse CLGS was created, um, reader conditionals weren't a thing yet. Uh, and um, so I, I think all, uh, all of the source files were sort of, you know, you had Instaparse core.clj and core.clgs. Mm -hmm. So it's like we had separate files for the closure and closure script. So it's like, cool. Um, uh, it's really cool that there's this port uh, port to closure script out there, um, but it, it wasn't it didn't feel realistic to actually make that an official thing until it um, it made sort of more it was more elegant as a code base, um, and uh, so um, a project I was working on for a few months uh, was trying to to take the really good work that Lucas did to to figure out how to how to write this in closure script and what needed to be used as JavaScript terminology and stuff like that 
uh, I, I, I had to take that and then sort of use uh, reader conditionals to make it a unified code base. But there was an additional problem on top of that, which was that, uh, you know, CLJC is sort of the reader conditional that we all know and love for Clojure. Uh, but that was only introduced relatively recently um, in Clojure 1.7. So uh, the, the the way that reader conditionals were implemented um uh, it's not backwards compatible with older versions of Clojure. So basically, if you were to write a library that ha uh, that and and write your your code in a CLJC file to be consumed by Clojure and Clojure Script, um, then uh, what would end up happening is that you would go to like ship your jar uh, as you know here, here's my jar that's a library with some CLJC files in it. And then the older versions of Clojure didn't know how to consume this, so you would go to use it on like Clojure 1.6, for example, which was still you know uh, alive and well in the e Clojure ecosystem used by people. So it would just not work, and they couldn't even see the files. Um, so unfortunately, the the regular reader conditionals uh, weren't a thing. And then on top of that, uh, after CLJC was announced, then there was a library called CLJX, which was uh, which would have worked on older versions of Clojure, um, but was deprecated after CLJC was announced. Uh, and and these sort of individual decisions that were made all de all made sense uh, when they were made. Like you know, mm -hmm. CLJX it didn't make sense for them to continue uh, to maintain it now that CLJC was out. Um, but sort of the collection of all these things made it kind of difficult as a as a library maintainer who wanted to. Uh, target older versions of Clojure. Um, it was difficult to do that. Uh, so I wrote a plugin to solve this, uh, which has a really confusing name. So I will say it and then spell it. Okay. Uh, it is called CLJC, spelled C L J S E E. Um, and. Okay. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> It's like closure and closure. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Like closure, Google closure, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and the the goal of that was m basically to do uh, what CLJX was doing, which was uh, take a cross compatible source file and then um, generate two different closure and closure script files. Like that's how CLJX, the unofficial plugin, was solving it before the official reader conditional format came along, uh, and I sort of adopted that exact same logic, but for CLJC, so we could sort of write it in the new format, future proofing for later, and then uh, at compile time, it would end up producing a cross-compatible jar. If that kind of makes sense, it's kind of a weird. Uh, turn of events and a kind of a confusing plugin. <laughs> I don't know if a lot of people actually understand why it's necessary, but I know, and that's all that matters. <laughs> but we can do Instaparse in the browser now, right? Uh, yes, you can. All right, sweet. <laughs> it's a fun time. So, just curious, what release is Instaparse on now? I haven't. Oh, I don't even remember. Like one point four point something. Yeah, right. one point four point <laughs> something sounds right. Cool. Semantic well, versioning. You, you've you've both times. done a, a great job on it, and just to think that it's it started in you know as an educational project, and it's it's just been made a great impact, and it's still going. So yeah. Uh, oh, I also want to mention uh, 
to, to your point about Instaparse in the browser, mm-hmm. after um, w- so while Instaparse CLJS was going on, um, a guy named I believe uh, Matt Hubert uh, made this thing called Instaparse Live, which is super fun. Basically, it is uh, it's just a, a really minimalistic kind of web app um, that uses Instaparse CLJS, where you can you have a it's just it's like a playground for writing your own parsers. Oh, so cool. um, so you you type in your parser and you type in your input and then in real time as you're typing it will like execute the parser and the input and show you the parse tree sort of but as kind of like friendly blocks of uh, to represent the data structures that are being emitted. Um, so uh, just for sort of anyone who wants to wrap their head around about around like how Instaparse works, uh, just Look it up. I I'm not sure what the what a good search term is, but I think if you just search Instaparse Live, it'll probably come up. But I just wanted to mention that because nice. that's that's the coolest uh, implementation of Instaparse clo- for closure script that I've seen so far. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Well, go ahead. Mark. And I I think that this experience of working on Instaparse and and helping do this for the community, uh, I mean, it it exceeded my wildest expectations, but it also I think was a huge part of Alex's development as a programmer. And and you probably know this since you know us, but maybe your listeners don't, but Alex has been programming professionally as a closure programmer since he turned 16. So he's already been a, a full, full-time software engineer for, I guess, two and a half years now, or a little more, actually almost three. So, uh, and I, I think experiences like that made a big difference. And making that possible. Mm, yeah, it looks good on resumes, basically. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. I, I wanted to um, touch on this uh, this other interesting project um, that I hear that I know that you're involved in, Mark, and I wonder uh, whether Alex uh, contributed to it as well, is a, another education having to do with a board game. Is this... Mm. A Codemaster, is that the is that the name of it? Oh yeah, right. Um, so a- Alex mentioned that I've been working independently for many years, and that's because you know I was staying home with the kids, and gradually, like I, I wasn't actually planning to do any work, but when I I was approached at some point because I'm a puzzle guy, I was approached to do some freelance work on puzzle development, and. That began a relationship between me and this company, ThinkFun, that's been a great relationship for many years. Uh, I've done some really interesting projects for them, and they've always respected the fact that my top priority was being home with the kids, and this was something I kind of did on the side. So I was able to sort of grow it to to fit the time I had allotted in my life for that. Um, And it was great. It was the kind of thing where, like, I'd be sitting there waiting while my kids were in their music lessons or whatever, and I could just pop up in my laptop and do some work. So it was something I was able to kind of fit in the context of the rest of my life. Um, so about three, I'm trying to remember how it was, three or four years ago, I was approached by ThinkFun. They explained that, you know, hey, you do puzzles. You also teach computer science. We would really like to make a puzzle game that, teaches computer science principles that is you know that that helps get kids on that right mental path for developing a mental model for how they can write programs but 
it's got to be, you know, Think Fun's business isn't making computer games, it's making physical puzzle toys. Like their most famous product is a product called Rush Hour. Rush Hour is, uh, it's been around since I was a kid. It's, it's a classic puzzle game where you pull out a puzzle card and it shows you how to set up these physical plastic cars on a grid. And then you're sliding the cars around to try to get the special red car out of the grid. Um, and actually one of my first projects for Think Fun was I developed a, a whole new set of rush hour puzzle cards for their newest edition. So I've been the, the new, the developer of all the new rush hour puzzles for the last <laughs> decade or so. Uh, so they wanted to make something kind of like that, some kind of puzzle toy, uh, a puzzle system that you would have a bunch of puzzle cards or puzzle setups and you set it up and you can physically solve the puzzle and would also be related to computer science. And so I thought about it for a while and came up with Codemaster. And one thing that was a really exciting development was that Target approached ThinkFun and asked if they could have an exclusive on Codemaster for the first season, the first holiday season that it was out. And that was a really uh, big deal because one of the challenges that a publisher like ThinkFun has is they, they've got to take each new product and go out to all these little toy shops and convince them to use their precious shelf space on this product. And it's hard when you've got a niche game, something that might only appeal to a small sector of the population, to, to make that case to a toy store. So it was great when someone like Target said, you know, hey, we want to we want to carry this in our stores. I mean, that that's great to have something like a puzzle toy related to computer science <laughs> in the mass awesome. market big box store. I mean, what an exciting opportunity. So uh, and, and then once like it was a big hit. And so that led to a couple things. First of all, it becomes much easier to place it in other toy stores later because you can say, hey, look, this game, it was a hit. Uh, but then also another exciting thing about that was that Target came back and said, that was really successful. Can you make more products like that for us? So I actually just finished work on a line of three new games for Target through ThinkFun to come out. It's uh, I, I just put the final touches on them. They've been sent out to the printer and they should arrive in stores in August and that to allow plenty of time for them to be in stores for the next holiday season. And I've got a fourth one that's gonna go, that's not through Target, but is gonna go direct out to the toy stores. Uh, but so that's four new games. I, that For me, that was a personal record. Like usually I create one new game maybe every one or two years. And so when they came to me and said, hey, can you make four new games this summer? <laughs> this was last summer. Four new games. I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's going to be challenging to do that many in one summer. But I, I said I'd do it and I... I that's amazing. Pulled, I, I pulled it off somehow. That's it, it amazing. It was a lot of work over the summer. So I'm really excited about this new line of games. Uh, were there specific questions you had or wanted me to talk about about Codemaster? That's kind of the story behind it. But no, is there I, more I, you, I, anything specific you game? 
want to share. I mean, I just think that's so cool that there's like coding concepts that you made into a game that is selling in Target that is successful and it's related to education. I just think that's amazing. And also, I think um, you should bring copies of those games to any conferences that you go to. Because I know, <laughs> I know there's usually a room set aside for board games and that would be super yeah. fun if, if you brought some. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, speaking of conferences, I guess Closure West, you're going to be going to? Yep. So both are going, and um, Mark, you're speaking, right? Yes. I'm going to be speaking uh, about, well, it, it's kind of inspired by a couple things. It's partly inspired by some work that Alex did a while ago, and also some work I've been doing recently. But one of the things I've been finding as I've been working on these puzzle games is that there are, uh, there are certain classes of puzzles and problems that can be solved very efficiently by Java problem-solving engines. And we, Alex and I have each spent some time learning how to develop closure wrappers on top of those libraries that would allow us to express problems uh, using closure data structures and using all the facilities that closure has to make it so easy to work with these problems at a high level. And then you turn it into a form that can be passed into these really fast Java problem solving engines. And then the Java engine spits out an answer and then you wanna translate that back into closure data structures at the end. Hmm. So we've each done that with some different underlying engines and I'm going to be presenting that. Uh, but the libraries that we have developed, but also explaining how this is kind of a process that could be, it's like, yes, if this, if you decide that you have a problem that fits one of these engines, you can use one of our libraries out of the box, and that's great, but also just kind of explaining in the talk how with this mindset, you can approach a lot of other problems that way. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the reason why I think this is important to talk about right now is that right now as a community, I think we've gotten so excited about the cross-compatibility between Clojure and ClojureScript that we're starting to forget some of the amazing benefits we get from being a, a hosted language. Mm. Like it's been a while since I've heard people talk about, you know, hey, you can do this really amazing thing with the version of Clojure that sits on top of Java specifically because there's already this really fast Java engine that does this particular thing and mm. here's an interesting way to use that from Clojure. Uh, it seems like lately when I talk about some new library or something I'm working on with Clojure, the first question I get asked these days is, you know, how soon can you port that to ClojureScript? <laughs> and, and that's great. It's great that we're building up this library of cross-compatible things as well. But I really, uh, for I have found this really rich benefit from taking advantage of the fact that it's on top of Java, which is actually kind of ironic because in the very early days of Clojure, I wrote one of my first blog posts was kind of a evaluation of Clojure as I saw it coming from Racket and sort of looking at some of the trade-offs. And in that blog post, I, I sort of said 
something along the lines of how, to me, the fact that Clojure was on top of Java, I perceived it at the time mostly as a disadvantage. I, I sort of said, that's where, like, I don't, there's nothing in Java that I care about, and the Java is the source of all the, the clunkiness or inelegance or the compromises that are in Clojure. So, you know, I, I'm not, to me, I'm not crazy about the fact that it's hosted on Java. And so here it's years later, I'm basically saying, okay, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, at the time I was coming to Clojure, yeah, I didn't know the Java ecosystem. I didn't, I didn't appreciate it. I, and so that's how I viewed it at the time. But now I'm realizing how powerful it is that Clojure sits on top of Java. Uh, one of the, the language that I used to use most commonly immediately before Clojure was Python. And when I would run into some kind of performance problem in Python, there was just really no way around it or no easy way around it. Uh, the first time I hit a performance roadback block enclosure, I just sat down and wrote the performance critical piece in Java and it worked wonderfully. And it was, that was the first time I realized how valuable that was to be able to drop down to that level and so easily write something high performance and interface that to, to closure. And then after that was when I started discovering all these other libraries that I could use out of the box. And so, so now I'm a big believer in the fact that Clojure brings us a lot of benefits from its choice to run on top of Java, but I did not always feel that way. So this is my, this talk is going to be me show, showing some of these new libraries that I've developed that interface between Clojure and Java and talking a little bit about what I just described. That's great. That uh, sounds like something definitely to look forward to. And maybe you'll bring some games too? <laughs> I don't know if they'll be out in time, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm still, it, it takes a while for these things to get shipped over from China. But at least Codemaster though. Yeah, I can bring Codemaster for sure. Okay, great. <laughs> um, I get, is there anything that you have on your mind that you haven't talked about yet um, before we kind of go to our final question? There's other libraries that we've written that I just don't know if it's worth going into, but just to refresh your memory sure. and you can tell me if there are things that are worth talking about. I did the Math Combinatorics Library, the Math Numeric yes. Tower Library, Data Priority Map, Ubergraph. And the, there was Loco, right? Yeah, Alex yeah did I did Loco. Loco. Yeah, sure. If, if you want to talk about any of them, please, please go ahead. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think sort of a, a segue from the his point about libraries that work with this with the Java libraries. Mm -hmm. uh, I um, a while ago before this this talk became uh, relevant, um, I uh, I was sort of exploring this with constraint programming. For that, I, I have to sort of back up back into the sort of education side of things because I was uh, I was working on um, some Coursera courses as part of my uh, computer science education when I was about like 13 or 14 or so. Yeah. Something like that. Um, and uh, I took a um, discrete optimization course, which is really fun. Uh, and it was, um, it sort of explored a few different kinds of like uh, NP complete problems and, and explored the different algorithms that are already out there for, 
not necessarily perfectly solving these because, as we know, those are those are going to take sort of exponential um, amounts of time. But trying to sort of uh, optimize in a close manner that you can use in like realistic kind of um, real scenarios where you just kind of want to approximate and get not the best, but a good solution for these things. So like traveling salesman problem that might come up in real life, but um, you don't necessarily need the optimal problem or the optimal solution, but you can approximate using a few different types of optimization algorithms that might uh, harness kind of Mm -hmm. randomness or efficient, but approximate optimization essentially. And one of the techniques they went into was constraint programming and I liked the, uh, that especially because it was um, it, it was very interesting to me because you could express these problems um, uh, in terms of uh, very simple declarative constraints and then pass it on to some solver and run it. And uh, so I in in my spare time I was interested in kind of. Um, Sort of, I, I in my free time I did what my dad does professionally, which is sort of write programs to solve puzzles. <laughs> and uh, I was, and I found it interesting that constraint programming seemed to be a really good fit for solving puzzles. Part of what my dad's going to talk about in the talk. Uh, and I noticed that there was a, some Java libraries already out there, so I, I wrote Loco, which is a closure version or a closure wrapper that uses a Java library called Choco to solve the problems. But while I was on Clojure, I figured out a way to make uh, sort of data be relevant in the expression of the problems. Hmm. So is uh, Loco going to be in the Clojure West talk at, at all, or just the concepts? Uh, yeah, I'm going okay. to show three different libraries, and Loco is going to be one of the three. Oh, great. That's awesome. Well, thank you for telling us about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, at the end of the show, we usually um, ask for a piece of advice. And um, I think, Mark, you were going to give a piece of advice to the listeners. Yeah, so my advice comes from the fact that I found in my own life that the things that I'm good at, I got good at over a long period of time. Nothing happens right away. So my advice is to, if you want to get better at something, to just focus on doing it a little bit every day for a really long time. Uh, and, and it's one mistake that people sometimes make in implementing that advice is they just do something that's comfortable and easy over and over again every day. That in and of itself isn't going to progress you. You have to always kind of, always challenge yourself, always try to do something a little better than you did it the day before. And that's pretty much my recipe for hopefully getting better at things over time. And maybe that advice will be useful to somebody else. That's great advice. And it sounds like you can just use that for just about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Computer programming, cooking, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, thank you um, both so much um, for being on the show. And um, it's been a wonderful talk. We could just go on for hours and um, you know, I still wouldn't <laughs> get to everything. But hopefully people will be at Closure West. They'll be able to see your talk and um, come up and talk to you both and uh, maybe play a game of Codemaster as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, that'd be great. 
So uh, thank you again, and thanks for everyone for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. This week, our guests were Mark and Alex Engelberg. Mark is at Mark underscore Engelberg on Twitter. That's at M-A-R-K underscore E-N-G-E-L-B-E-R-G. Alex is at A Engelbro on Twitter. That's at A-E-N-G-E-L-B-R-O. Our host this week was Karen Meyer, who is at Gigasquid on Twitter. That's at G-I-G-A-S-Q-U-I-D. Think 8 billion arms on Twitter and GitHub. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>